Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 272, Dr. Timothy Paul's In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, Part 1. Dr. Timothy Paul teaches philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. Paul is a specialist in analytic theology, philosophy of religion, metaphysics, and the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Back in 2016, I had the privilege of interviewing him twice about his book called In Defense of Conciliar Christology, a philosophical essay. I thought then, and I still think now, that it's an important, in some ways, groundbreaking work in that field. It's something that I think you can't ignore if you're seriously inquiring into the coherence of two natures theory. In these two interviews, we're going to talk about his book called In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. Dr. Paul, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me, Dale. Well, it's been a long time since we talked. I think it's been more than 100 episodes. Wow. (laughs) Congratulations on your new book called In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. You know, I was just looking at the acknowledgments here. Holy cow. I mean, you should call this book, I Traveled the Globe and Thought About Incarnation While I Was Doing It, (laughs) to Germany, Poland, California, Cambridge, and Oxford, yeah, and uh, all kinds of other exciting places like uh, Notre Dame and, of course, the University of St. Thomas, where you teach. You've presented this stuff all over creation, so... It's another uh, important book, I think. It's chock full of precise arguments. And, you know, I would say the world would be a better place if theologians and apologists could argue half as well as you do. Oh, boy. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I always agree with the conclusion, but um, because you present carefully tooled valid arguments, if I don't want the conclusion, I know I have to get off the bus at one of these premises. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a very bold and uh, brave way of proceeding, I think, instead of giving us, you know, five cloudy pages that we have to figure out, you know, what it is you're claiming. Like, nope, here's what I'm claiming. 12 premises. Tell me what's wrong with this argument. And uh, yeah, they're very challenging arguments sometimes. It's not just a little logical exercise. It's grappling with serious things. Oh, well, thanks, Dale. That means a lot coming from you. Yeah. So thanks for the book and for your work. You know, I I do read uh, analytic theology and other kinds of theology, but I also read apologetics and just the sort of thing that the Christian in the pew reads. And um, sometimes I see apologists defending the idea of incarnation. So, for instance, if they're in discussion with Muslim people, uh, they're saying, look, it's just obviously coherent. I mean, what's what's really the problem at all? We have to say that a being as great as God could become a man. Like, didn't he wrestle with Jacob in the night? Didn't he visit Abraham with a couple other guys that really turned out to be angels? So, I mean, isn't it just obvious that the creator can enter into his creation? In your view, is that enough to defend the traditional doctrine of incarnation? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'd be happy if the response I heard most often was a response that said, yeah, this stuff's obvious. What are you doing? If I did hear a response like that, 
frequently, I, my CV would look much different than it looks these days with all this work defending Christology against objections. I think that approach, it begins with a reading of Scripture as authoritative and true, and that Scripture does say such things like you pointed out. And so I can see why if, if somebody begins there with a high view of Scripture, they'd be prone to think that an incarnation is obviously possible. But, I mean, that said, not everybody begins there. Yeah, and consider the guy that wrestled with Jacob in the night, you know, did he have a mother and father? Did he go to school somewhere? It's not clear that these are real people rather than just apparent people, is it? I mean, maybe they're bodily beings, but it's just not clear to me that in these, what theologians call theophanies, that the God person has to be an actual human being. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And even if you have a high view of Scripture as authoritative and saying truths, and you think it's saying that Jacob wrestled with, uh, well, sometimes it says an angel, you might think it's with God, you can still ask the question. I think it's a reasonable question. Is this thing really God in the same sort of sense that Christ is God on the traditional uh, incarnation doctrine? And I think probably not. Yeah. I mean, look, you could be Jewish and reject incarnation and accept these episodes, and that's not obviously inconsistent, it seems to me. I mean, it's a tempting defense, though, because if you think that God is omnipotent, you know, we in sci-fi, we have shape-shifting races, and, you know, <laughs> they turn into a puddle of water and they go under the door, or now they appear like a beautiful lady, and now they appear like, I don't know, a Klingon or something. Yeah. And, well, if you're all-powerful, I mean, you could appear to anybody any way you want, right? You could appear like an avocado or <laughs> a, a woolly mammoth or you know, a man that wants to wrestle you. Sure. If God's omnipotent and all knowing, then these would be very easy things. But of course the incarnation doctrine is not just appears to be a man, but in some sense is genuinely human. In those sci-fi examples, like in the, the movie, the monster squad, where the, the man turns into the wolf man back and forth into a werewolf. What happens in those cases is when they get all wolfed out, they go from not having claws to having claws and not having a snout to having a snout and hmm. from having no or maybe less back hair to having an ingrown sweater and so on. And so they, they go from being one way to being another and they stop being the first way that they were. And on the incarnation doctrine, that's not what happens with Christ. It isn't a transformation where he once was omnipresent and now he isn't anymore. On the traditional doctrine, he stays omnipresent and omnipotent and atemporal, even while entering time. Yeah. And these are much more difficult ideas. I mean, another view that occurs, I think, to people is, it's not just Platonists, I think, but people generally, I think, are dualists. They think that a person can go outside their body. There's a difference between the soul and the body and so on. And they say, well, look, this, this is all the metaphysics you need. You have this eternal word from John 1. The word gets a body from Mary. The word now is the soul that animates this living body. And so why, why can't it just be that? I mean, that doesn't seem hard to conceive. It doesn't seem particularly impossible, but yet it does go against the mainstream tradition, doesn't it? Yeah. That move was tried and found wanting in the fourth century by a fellow named Apollinarius. He's a, a bishop who thought that Christ had no created human soul Instead, the word played the role of the created human soul in him. Uh, you even sometimes still find contemporary defenders of such a view, like uh, William Lane Craig holds a view mm -hmm. he calls neo-Apollinarianism, 
whereby the the word plays the role of the soul in the human nature of Christ. Yeah. I think that's just not going to work though. I mean, for one reason, if you have a case where you have a person who doesn't have any human soul at all, it's hard to make sense of how that person gets to count as a human person. Typically, at least in the metaphysics, we tell humans apart from non-humans in virtue of what sort of substantial form or what sort of soul they have. So I wouldn't think of that as being a human in that case. So yeah, the idea of incarnation actually turns out to be really involved. My impression, though, is that ordinary Christians, they'll say things like Jesus is God, Jesus is divine, but they don't really understand what you could call the classical tradition about these things. They're not familiar with terms like hypostatic union or the anhypostatic human nature and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Paul, how have ordinary Christians reacted to your books? And then also, how have Christian philosophers reacted? And I'm asking because I know you've just been all over the whole entire globe talking to Christian philosophers. <laughs> but start with the ordinary uh, you know, people at your church or people that you talk about these things with, how do they react? Well, I don't know of many ordinary Christians who've read any of my books, so <laughs> I'm not sure how they've accepted it. I have given uh, talks on the topics of my books in lots of places, and sometimes those places have included a popular level audience. I once, this was just a couple months ago at Oxford at Blackfriars, I gave a talk to a room that had Richard Swinburne and Alex Proust in it on either side. And then right in the middle, this elderly couple that for all I know could have been philosophers or theologians, but by the looks on their faces when I was speaking were not philosophers and theologians. And so what I was trying to do was get my my nice elderly couple to nod as I spoke, showing some sort of comprehension of what I was saying, and get Richard and Alex not to fall asleep as I was saying stuff, trying to pitch just right for those two different groups. I think I found that the ordinary Christians in the pews can follow it. It's easy to get the problems in the Christology. Like, how can one person be both immutable and mutable? Doesn't that seem just obviously wrong? It's easy to motivate mm. and a bit trickier to get them to see solutions. But once you get them motivated, they're hooked. You know, they, they at least want to see how someone might try to resolve the problem. Do you break out the, uh, the visual aids, the, the models that you use? I like your little sketches. I mean, when I've taught this, I've used similar devices. I almost think you have to have a visual aid to talk about how these different components relate to each other. Yeah, I use a lot of uh, pictures when there's, a, when there's a board there to use, or a lot of analogies, too. Like, sometimes folks will say, well, he, he suffered qua human, and he, he was unable to suffer qua divine. And well, there you have it. And I think, yeah, but, but listen, what if I told you I had succeeded in drawing a square circle? And you said, hey, wait a second. If it's square, it's got four right angles and four equally length sides. And <laughs> if it's a circle, it's got no right angles. And But it's okay uh, because all the it points has four right angles qua square and it has no angles yeah. qua circle. Yeah. If I said to you, well, hey, buddy, I've got news for you. I drew it four angled and four-sided qua-square and <laughs> no angled and no-sided qua-circle. And then I just sat back and relaxed. I don't think you'd be very satisfied. So, I mean, they get it. They get that the qua move is not... It's a, I think it's a great opening move. I think down that path is where a Christian should head. But I do not think that it all by itself, it's going to solve the problems just, just by asserting qua-human he suffered and qua-divine he didn't. Mm. 
Well, okay, you're right that the popular crowd is really one thing and the Christian philosopher crowd is entirely another thing. So, I mean, what's been your reception with people like Proust and Swinburne? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- so I'm thinking of the published reviews of the book and most of them have been positive. In fact, I think very positive in their reviews of the book, which was good. I think there's also been a, an uptick of Christian philosophers interested in what the ecumenical councils say and what the conciliar notions are for theology. So, for instance, uh, Joseph Jedwab and Scott Williams and Bo Branson are putting together a special issue of a journal, Theologica, on what they call conciliar Trinitarianism. And they're modeling that off of uh, my usage of the term conciliar Christology. Mm. And I think that's a great thing. I think one grump I normally have about what philosophers of religion do is that we, we tend to avoid the nitty-gritty history of the doctrines. And I think we have to start there because, I mean, what's the use of trying to defend a novel view and, and only finding out much later that it's a view that no Christian has ever wanted to assert since the fourth century? Well, I was reviewing our previous discussions on this podcast, and you made a great point. I think it was in the second one. You said, look, the ecumenical councils, you can read all their statements in like 75 pages or something. Yeah. How hard can it be? You know, admittedly, it's not always the most fun reading, but I mean, if this stuff is important, like, why wouldn't you just go ahead and read that? Yeah, for sure. um, I would make the point to Christian philosophers that the New Testament isn't that much longer. (laughs) You're right. And uh, (laughs) I'm not sure this should always be pushed off on the theologians. Like, they're the only ones that can understand this material. I mean, look, if you can understand Thomas Aquinas or Plotinus or Aristotle... You can understand Matthew mm-hmm. or Paul. Now, Paul's a pain sometimes, but I mean, he's not harder than Plotinus or even Kant. Yeah. Well, who's harder than Kant? I don't know. No, nobody. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe Hegel. Right. <laughs> if you like consistency, I think he's incredibly painful. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once... But not sort- everybody does, so he always has a constituency. Yeah, that's true, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> uh One sort of response, you asked for responses from Christian philosophers. Yes. One sort of response I get, and I don't always know what to do with, is a response I think of as like, what shelf should I put this on in the library? And so, people ask, well, is is he doing philosophy or is it more analytic theology? The books are in a series of analytic theology. Is it systematic theology or philosophical theology? Is it apologetics? I mean, what is this stuff? And from my perspective... I don't really mind very much what shelf someone puts the work on. I'm more interested in what I can think of as like first order questions about my books. Like, are the arguments sound? Did I correctly represent the traditional teaching? Have I missed an important objection or reply? Have I equivocated or made a category mistake or committed a fallacy? Those are the things I really want to hear about and talk about. Not like, does it count more as theology or philosophy? That's an okay question, I suppose, but it's not one that I care that much about the answer to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's kind of apologetics, right? I mean, it's defensive. It's, hey, if you think this is impossible, show me how it's impossible, because I'm going to show you that you can't show me that it's impossible. I mean, it involves theology, and it involves philosophy, but, I mean, to me, it's like well-argued, more deeply informed apologetics. Yeah. Um, I know, I know some scholars use apologetics like it's a, like it's a bad word, but um, I don't mean it that way. I mean, if you're a Christian, you think that these things need to be defended. So all Christians believe in apologetics. It's just, you know, you do it one way or another. 
And this is doing it with the very helpful tools of analytic philosophy. Yeah, I wonder, do you think if I were writing a book on like utilitarianism and arguing against all the comers who say it's philosophically incoherent, would that be sufficient for it being an apologetics book too? No, because the subject matter isn't theological and religious claims. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, apologetics, it's, I'm not even sure that's really a, a subject matter. It's a type of argument. Yeah. Like, well, like you said, I mean, who really cares? Uh, all that matters is what's true in this. And, um, well, that's not all that matters. I mean, I think it's really valuable. You're making a lot of interesting and often neglected points about the, the tradition, you're actually throwing out some pretty hard objections against rival approaches sometimes. Mm-hmm. Some people think kenosis will save us. Some people think <laughs> two minds just solves everything that needs to be solved. And you're like, nope and nope. Yeah. And let me tell you why in five pages, you know, it's tough. It's well argued. It's not purely defensive, like my mind is made up and you can't move me. I mean, I made it sound like that a minute ago, but it's actually at the same time exploring deep into different approaches and different issues, I think. It's not purely defensive. You know, you're trying to figure out what you think about some of these things as you go along. And so that's why you dig so far into some of these arguments, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We can see you doing it. You you get really deep into this argument about multiple incarnations or Christ's freedom of the will, things like that. And the careful reader will notice that you're exploring, well, should I deny this? Should I deny this? Mm, I don't think that works. Should I deny this? No, that mm-hmm. doesn't seem right. I can't deny that. That's helpful to the reader, you know? It's not just a rhetorical defense. It's like a deep exploration at the same time as it's a defense, I think. No, oh, thanks. Yeah, that that was the goal. Yeah, it was, and a lot of it was me working through, like, what happens if I walk down this trail a bit further? And then the modus tollens comes looming, and I say, oh, well, I guess I'm not going that way. <laughs> right. Always watch out for the modus tollens. Yeah, right. It's like a beast in a labyrinth. <laughs> for the non-philosophers out there, Modus tollens is the Latin name for a certain form of argument. It's an argument that goes like this, if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. When one refutes a philosophical claim, it's very often in this form, if P, if your theory is true, then Q, some consequence logically follows from it, Q would have to also be true, but not Q, actually We know that Q is false for some reason, and therefore, conclusion, we know that the theory P is false. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss my own central objection to Dr. Paul's approach to two natures theory. Dr. Paul, one thing I've wondered about with your approach is that you crucially rely on the concept of a supposit, which, I mean, basically a supposit is just an unassumed substance, I get, thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, this whole area of supposit theory comes from the high Middle Ages. But in the book, you're defending the Christology of the first seven councils, which only goes up to the year 787. So is this an objection that people say, how can you import this later idea back into something going on in the 500s or the 400s? Yeah, I may be forgetting someone who did such a thing. Uh, I know other topics, and I'll talk about one in a sec, that people have said, hey, you're being anachronistic here. But for supposit in particular, I don't remember. I mean, maybe you know of one that I'm forgetting. But supposit is the Latin translation of the Greek word hypostasis, and that is found in the earliest councils. Now, it's, it's true I rely on a medieval analysis of that concept, but I do think you can find a similar analysis in older Eastern fathers like St. John of Damascus. So I don't think it's wholly foreign to the Eastern milieu of at least the later councils. I have been criticized for being overly Western or for being overly scholastic. I think those charges, I think they misunderstand what I'm up to. I'm just trying to give one way you can understand the councils and their concepts such that the main philosophical objections against an incarnation, or in this new book, against an incarnation plus some other traditional teachings, fail. And on my view, a broadly Thomistic understanding is one such way you can go. And I'm not coy about following the thought of St. Thomas. There's a section heading in this new book called On My Reliance on St. Thomas. So it isn't that I'm smuggling it in. I think what the objector would have to say is that there's no good sense in which a broadly Thomistic understanding of the relevant terms is satisfactory. And some folks do say that. But I think every approach has detractors. And I mean, boy golly, you'll find lots of love for Aquinas and all sorts of Western traditions that want to stay close to the councils. And even some Easterners have some deep devotion to Aquinas, too. So I don't think he's a bad choice of someone to follow for what the concepts might mean and how to fit them all together. So, I mean, being too Western, not including enough Eastern content, like, what was the real substance of the complaint? I mean, it's not like affirmative action, we have to have, you know, an equal (laughs) number of Easterners and Westerners or something like that. Was there like a substantial point they were complaining about? Like, they think that Easterners are different when it comes to incarnation? You know, it would have been good to hear not only, hey, you're shortchanging the Easterners, but also, and here are two ways you do it, such that this premise of this argument doesn't work anymore. But that last part, the like where the rubber hits the road, I don't know if I ever heard that part. Hmm. Yeah, well, it could have been a matter of honor, I suppose. That does, mm-hmm. that does happen in these discussions. Yeah, I think you're right. When I listen back on our previous discussions, uh, we talked about this complaint, which you find obnoxious that your view is an historian. <laughs> and uh, what you had to say about that was interesting. And But I wouldn't want someone to mistake that complaint for my complaint, which we didn't, I don't think, really talk about in those episodes. So my main objection to your brand of two natures theory is that when I look at it, I still see two selves or persons in Christ. And that's just one too many in light of the New Testament. And I say this because what you call his divine nature and his human nature, these two things do things that only selves can do. They say things, they choose, they think, they love. One of them dies a human death by crucifixion, suffering, knowing all things, or maybe not all things, etc. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that defining a self or a person to be a supposit of a certain kind is just kind of sweeping this problem under a verbal carpet, right? Because the only reason why Christ's human nature doesn't count as a human person is just because we've defined the term person 
so that a person has to be a supposite, that is to say, an unassumed nature. I mean, to my eye, it looks like we've got two persons or two selves in the picture. It's just that we've decided not to call one of them a self. So, first of all, what do you think about that objection? And second of all, do you agree that most theologians and apologists who argue for a two-natures theory about Christ don't bring in this supposite idea? Yeah, well, I guess I have very little exposure to what the apologists are doing. I don't read very much apologetics work, so it could very well be that contemporary apologists don't have the concept of a hypothesis or supposite, or even if they do have it, they, they don't employ it the way that I think they ought to in their argumentation. If they don't have that concept, I have a hard time seeing how they make sense of the traditional claims about the human nature of Christ. So, we're supposed to think of the human nature as a unity. It's all that stuff together that was assumed by the word. I, I think of it like a concrete human nature. So, it's, it's got hair on it and bone and a heart and blood. And it was a certain size and shape. And it had eyes in its skull and those eyes were a certain color. It was that whole composite of body and soul. That's what is oftentimes called the human nature of Christ. Now, when you have that thing, you can ask what I think is a perfectly good question. And the question is, is that thing a person? Does it count as a person? Why wouldn't it if it's not? And as you point out, the answer's got to be no. It's, it's just one person there, not two. But if that thing is just like me, you know, I have bones and hair and arms and legs and a soul and a body, and I'm a person, how come that thing isn't a person? So I see the, the force of the, of the question. In response, let me switch the question a bit, and then I'll circle back here, I promise. Keep me honest. Don't let me just punt here, but I'm going to come back to this. Consider a theory of the human person on which you have a part in virtue of which you do your intellectual activity, and then you have other parts on which you don't do your, your uh, intellectual activity. So maybe you think you're a composite of body and soul, and it's your soul in virtue of which you do your intellectual activity, and you don't do it in virtue of your body. Or maybe you think you're wholly material, but you're composed of a brain, and then things like your, your hands, and it's in virtue of your brain that you do your intellectual activity, mm -hmm. and not in virtue of mm -hmm. your hands. In virtue, not. So the, the exact story here doesn't matter so much. All that matters is there's you, there's a part in virtue of which you do your mental activity, and then a part, say, your left thumb, in virtue of which you don't do your mental activity. And I think now we can ask, is that part in virtue of which you think, is that thing itself a person, the soul or the brain? And I think the answer here must be no as well. There's not two people sitting in this chair. I mean, I would never know which one I was if both I and my brain counted as persons. Yeah, that'd be one too many. That'd be one too many. Yeah. So that can't be a person. And now consider the whole me minus my left thumb part. Say I lose my left thumb in an unfortunate wholesale accident, which, by the way, I almost did lose my left thumb in an unfortunate wholesale accident a couple years ago. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I uh, had to go back into the house and be like, um, darling, remain calm. I'm bleeding and I need to go to the emergency room. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, this is a close nearby possible world. Yeah. So consider Tim Paul minus the left thumb. And ask yourself, that thing right now, is that thing a person? And I think here the answer's got to be no as well. Tim Paul, and then also Tim Paul minus his left thumb, those both can't be persons. Yeah. So then, 
and now, and now I'm circling back, I promise you. Mm-hmm. The question is, what is it in virtue of which the whole Tim Paul counts as a person, but Tim Paul minus his left thumb doesn't count as a person? And one thing folks point at, both in the incarnational style debates, but also just in the philosophy of the human person, is that no person can have a person part, or put otherwise, persons are maximal concepts such that it's only the biggest unity there that gets to count as a person, and not any sub-parts of it that get to count as persons. If you have that view, then you can say, Tim minus his left thumb isn't itself a person, though Tim is, and if Tim lost his left thumb, then the remainder, you know, it would be Tim minus his left thumb, that would be a person, it'd be me. And likewise, you can say, Christ's human nature is part, in some sense, of a larger whole, and so it doesn't get to count as a person, but if it were unplugged, so to speak, from the word, if the incarnation stopped and the assumption stopped, then it would fulfill the conditions for being a person, just like Tim minus his left thumb would. So I think there are metaphysical principles at play that are useful, like no person has a person part, and that are motivated outside of Christology such that when you bring them over to Christology, they're useful for showing why you don't have two persons here. You just have one person here. Yeah, I understand that metaphysical response. I mean, I understand that principle and why it's used. I think you explained the motivation for it. But I mean, if I was really sure about that principle, and I I do find it plausible, but if I was really sure about the principle, I mean, this walking, talking less than 200 pound thing that looks like a Jewish man. I mean, it seems so much like a person. I would just conclude, well, I guess he can't be a part of some greater whole then. Oh, I see. Yeah. You you use my conditional claim. Uh, If it's a person, then it's not part of a greater whole. And then you say, well, look at that thing. That sure looks like a person. So I guess it can't be part of a greater whole. And I went the other way and I said, but it's part of a greater whole. So by modus tollens, it's not a person. I mean, imagine that somebody was reading the New Testament and, um, I don't know, who's a really great character? Peter, maybe? And, okay. um, he, I mean, he's an exciting character and a sympathetic character and a tragic character all wrapped in one. Yeah. And, and a heroic character, too. But uh, someone said, yeah, you know, actually, not a person. He's, I don't know what he would be, a zombie or a... <laughs> a mannequin or a robot or anyway, not a person. You just be like, Oh, come on. If he's not a person, like what kind of evidence would you accept that somebody's a person? Yeah. But Jesus, I mean, the new Testament character, Jesus, I mean, he's all the more rich of personal character. You know, you, to some extent, you know what he's thinking more than with Peter and he's heroic. He suffers. He, he has a mom. Yeah. So I, I do see what you're saying. I have a, a slight language quibble, that I have to say it because I'm too pedantic not to be able to say it and be able to sleep tonight. Oh, you're a professor. But, you can be pedantic. Go ahead. <laughs> In my usage of language, I would say that um, Peter is a name of a supposite. It's a name of a person there. So is Jesus is a personal name. So I wouldn't use Peter in this example you gave as the name for the mannequin or the zombie. I'd say whatever the thing there is that is the largest united whole, which includes a rational nature, that thing would be Peter. I don't know what it would be actually in the case, but it'd be something there still named Peter. When you say Jesus, because that's a personal name, that can't be the name of the thing we're talking about. What you call in the book, CHN, Christ's Human Nature. Yeah. You don't use I think Jesus for that. Or, no, that, that's a Christ. good point. And I don't. Yep. I, I always use Jesus or Christ as a name of the person who, who suffered and died on the cross. The person who did. And the person who was born of the Virgin Mary and 
all the other things we say in the Nicene Creed of him. Yeah. There are some ancient people like Origen, I think, who do distinguish the man from the word. And sometimes I think they do use Jesus for what we're talking about, but they think it's a man too. So Hmm. they're not fully orthodox by later standards, but I like them because they got a man there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes, I do think there's a man there, a man, a man in the sense of a human person. I mean, I think this is why you run into people who say that you're supposed to say that Christ is man, but not a man, because they think a man would be a person who's a man. Whereas they think Christ is human in a sense, because he's got the right components that he's assumed, but he's not that thing we're talking about that looks, that sounds and walks and talks like a human person. Yeah. Yeah. I I have some sympathy in the following sense for the claim that you shouldn't call Christ a human person. On the one hand, I think you're a human person just in case you're, one, a human, and two, a person. And you got to say both those things of Christ. So, there's certainly a sense of that term human person that I think is apt and fitting of Christ. But on the other hand, uh, there was this old principle they had, which I think is a good one, and it's don't talk like the opponents talk for fear that in using their sort of language, you'll lead people astray. And so, the, the idea here is at least for those early folks, they were talking in ways that made Jesus seem like merely a human person. And the worry for the Orthodox fathers was when we say human person, it's going to sound like we're saying what the opponent says. And it's true, it doesn't logically imply what the opponent says, but in matters of preaching and oration, it's better to remember conversational implicature too, and be on the lookout for not saying things that the audience will hear in the wrong way. So, I think that's what governed the prudential maxim of not saying Christ is, quote, a human person, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, maybe that's right. I'm not sure. I mean, the opponent could be the, quote, mere man people, which is my view. Sometimes I even use that phrase, because why not? Um, (laughs) Even though it's terrible. Uh, But it could be the, the Gnostics, you know, because some of the Gnostics had, they had a man, and then they had this Christ who was an eon. And then when the man got crucified, the, the Christ flew away because that would be undignified or something and left the poor man there. They have a Christ who's a heavenly divine spirit. And then they have, they have a man. It would sound like that as well, because you'd have the word and you'd have the man. The interesting thing is you get origin who's got exactly those things. Um, it's hmm. all over. It's all over his works, really. Although yeah, I don't know his works well enough to speak to that, so I'll just take your word for it. It's kind of all over his works, but it's also kind of systematically hidden because he, I think, is the person who came up with the communication of idioms idea. Hmm. I think in him it's purely linguistic. I don't think it has to do with property sharing. So he basically just says that the word and the man are so doggone unified. Just they. You know, they're about the same business. They love each other. Seemingly, they've loved each other since the pre-existence when the man was just a soul. And um, so, yeah, things like that, he says in scripture, are called one, like a man and his wife are said to be one flesh. So, we say these are one, one something. At the same time, he seems to talk like he has a Christ who has both of those. Hmm. He also says in some place that sort of 
the less enlightened folk are going to notice Jesus, but the more enlightened people like myself are going to see, you know, that it's really all about the word. It's, it's the eternal logos that's the actor in the story that really is the important one. Well, that's interesting. I think that's kind of ridiculous. But <laughs> anyway, we're not here to defend or poop on origin, <laughs> as fun as it may be. Um, I do want to ask you one question about that, though, if that's okay with you. Go ahead, yeah. It's about the communication of idioms and the and the claim about man and wife, like uh, being so closely united that we yes. count as one. I mean, you would not want to communicate idioms there. Like, Tim Paul shaves his mustache most mornings, but not his beard. You wouldn't communicate that to my beloved wife, that Faith Paul shaves her mustache most mornings, <laughs> but not her beard. The Faith uh, has one of the best beards in town. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that would be highly misleading. Yes, let the record show I would never say such a thing about my beloved wife. <laughs> yeah, but I think he would, you know, he wants to say the word was crucified and the word suffered. and yeah. The word was born, and yet in his view, those things are just obviously impossible because this is a divine being we're talking about. And um, about apologists and theologians and this idea of suppositum mm-hmm. or supposit, you use supposit interchangeably with hypostasis. They love to talk about hypostasis because then that shows that you know Greek words and are smart. Oh, no, no. <laughs> but... They don't think of it in terms of of a suppositum. They just think hypostasis means person, and that's a technical Trinitarian term. Or they know that hypostasis in, in some sources just means like a thing, yeah. like a first substance. It was only reading analytic philosophers discussing medieval philosophy that I ran into this idea of a suppositum. I didn't find it in the wild with uh, apologists. Huh. Maybe there's some more medieval apologist guy that I don't read, but... I guess I stick more to Protestants, but hey. Yeah, I wonder if you read around in, I, I guess I just don't even know Catholic apologists, but I wonder if you read around in them, if you'd find it more frequently. That's a good question. I have a couple books on my shelf that I haven't got around to yet, but mm-hmm. I was reading a book by a certain person who shall remain nameless, who is Catholic and writing about early church fathers. Mm-hmm. And I literally threw the book across the room. Oh no. And it's still sitting there. I've left it there oh. in squalor for a month now because I'm so mad. Anyway, does his name <laughs> does does his name rhyme with Pim Tall? No. Okay, good, good. Whew. No, no, no. The uh, the Tim Paul volumes enjoy an honored place on my shelf, <laughs> and uh, the worst they get is a lot of highlighting. Uh-huh. But see, that's a sign of of love, not not a sign of hate. Whew. As, as, even though I have some disagreements, I have never thrown them. All right. That's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> when the Trinity's podcast returns, we talk about the significance of the famous council in the year 451. And we also discuss how this book, in defense of extended conciliar Christology, relates to Dr. Paul's earlier book called In Defense of Conciliar Christology.
Now, one thing I do find with apologists and theologians, sometimes even with analytic theologians, is just, hey, look, Chalcedon, or in American, Chalcedon, Mm -hmm. their famous definition, like, isn't that just all we need to know? I mean, that's the standard, right? Even Protestants seem to think that this is the standard, and it says what you're supposed to say. So, why do we need now two books about this when we have a council that has settled the matter? Yeah. (laughs) Well, if people had just accepted the darn thing, we wouldn't be here. But all these people argued against it, so somebody had to pull out their computer and grump against those people who objected to it long enough to show that they were wrong. <laughs> but you're not referring to the, the monophysites. Oh, no, no. Or you're just yeah. crit- critics of incarnation. Yeah, critics in general. Two natures yeah. theory, yeah. But I see, uh, yeah, why those later councils? I guess because, so Chalcedon says that Christ has a human soul, and um, Ephesus says it's a rational and intellectual soul. And you might think that's enough, but some people started wondering whether the soul was, so to speak, online, whether there were any intellectual or volitional activities with respect to the soul. And I guess if Mm -hmm. you read Chalcedon, you could, I guess you could read it both ways, that it's, you could read it as offline, I suppose. Um, I guess, I don't even want to claim that you could. I just want to say that people did. And so, there was need for some further clarification on what's going on. And so, that they did call a council to say that he has two operations, one from each nature, two wills, each nature wills, or Christ wills by means of each nature. They didn't think it settled all the questions, that's for sure. And yeah. I mean, it was a very controversial council as well. You know, the, there was a branch of people who never have accepted it that were in the, the small C Catholic fold. Oh, sure. The monophysites. Do you agree, Dr. Paul, with the interpretation that I see a lot of theologians giving to the definition from this Council of Chalcedon that really it's just giving you kind of linguistic rules, it's telling you, well, say this and don't say that, and it's actually not giving a doctrine, if that doctrine includes like a real metaphysical, set of metaphysical claims? Uh, I guess it depends. The short answer is no, I don't agree. I've read like a Sarah Coakley, who I think has done very good work on this. She writes that the definition of Chalcedon, which is a very short document, actually, the definition, that it itself gives you what you might think of as regulating principles beyond which you're not allowed to go. But it doesn't tell you the substantial metaphysical aspects of Christ. I mean, that's from memory, and I haven't read it in a while, so I hope I didn't goof that up. But I'm pretty sure that's what she says. I mean, I've read that. That's roughly right, yeah. But that's not all that there is in Chalcedon. And so, I don't take her to be saying anything more than what I just said. But in Chalcedon, you also have the Tome of Leo, which was called a pillar of right belief. And they said St. Peter was speaking through St. or they called him Pope Leo at the time. St. Peter was speaking through Pope Leo in the Tome. And in the tome, you surely do find more robust claims made about the natures of Christ and about what they do and all sorts of things that, are, that aren't just mere linguistic conventions, but truths about, or uh, assertions anyway, about how the incarnation actually was. Yeah, that seems right to me. I mean, they were making rules about what should be said. I mean, that's kind of the point of those types of pronouncements, but that doesn't mean they didn't have something in mind you know, as far as actual metaphysics, because it seems like they did. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think we're still arguing about the metaphysics of that, right? If you look up an entry on incarnation in a philosophical encyclopedia, it's here's several different ways of 
trying to make sense of basically their position, the two nature position. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Paul, what is your project in this book? It's something very specific. And how exactly does this book relate to your previous book? Yeah, let me start with the previous book. That book first presented what I take to be the the teachings of the first seven ecumenical councils on the natures and person of Christ. So the goal there was just to say, here's what is infallibly taught at those councils, or to be more ecumenical, allegedly infallibly taught at those councils. And then the next part of the book was just um, a series of objections to the teaching of the councils and a series of my replies to those objections with the goal of showing at the end that there's no extant philosophical objection that shows the teachings of those first seven councils concerning Christ to be incoherent or inconsistent. Now go to the next book. The next book says, hey, keep that same conciliar Christology and add on to it five different what I call extensions of conciliar Christology, which are common in theological history. You find non-ecumenical councils and uh, fathers of the church and doctors of the church and prominent theologians asserting these things. But so far as I know, they're never officially taught in those first seven councils. Take those five extra claims, conjoin them with conciliar Christology, and ask the very same question. Is there any extant philosophical argument which shows that the conjunction of conciliar Christology with these five additional claims is incoherent or inconsistent? And again, the conclusion of the book is negative. There is no such argument, at least none that I can find anywhere in the literature. And as for what those claims are, the first is that multiple incarnations are possible. The second is that Christ descended into hell after his death and before his resurrection. The third is that Christ's human will was free. The fourth is that Christ was tempted, but yet unable to sin. And the last is the claim that in his human intellect, Christ knew all things past, present, and future. So you're acknowledging that there's a hard core of what's really strictly required by the ecumenical councils. And then some of these things you mentioned just now, they're very closely related, I think. Like, I think they're very widely held and others not so much. Mm -hmm although they're widely discussed, but it would still be bad if these other almost core claims were incoherent, right? So you're just going the extra mile in this book. Yeah, yeah, I think, so for instance, I, I give evidence for each of these five claims that Thomas Aquinas asserted each of these five claims. And that's not meant, and I say it's not meant to show that any of those claims are true. Aquinas' say-so is not sufficient evidence that anything is true, but I think it's good evidence that it's a viable position in the history of philosophical theology, and given Aquinas's prominence, especially in the Catholic Church, a position to be taken seriously. Yeah, and well, it gets pretty wild, some of the stuff <laughs> that he discussed. So, uh, <laughs> take my word for it, people, you're going to want to hear the next episode, because uh, we're going to get a little strange, uh, even stranger than hypostatic union and and, and hypostatic uh, natures and things like that. That's true. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Dale. This week's thinking music has been the track The Bipolar Bear, live in concert by Papa Zulu. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. 
have some reason to think that Dr. Paul is a metalhead, and this was the most metal track I could find. If you know a better one for part two of this interview, send me a link. It just has to have a full CC license. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.